Matthew chapter 26, and we'll pick up in verse 36 tonight, and we'll read through verse 56. 36 to 56, and uh, this is a, it's a very long chapter, 75 verses, so uh, we're just taking it as we go. So Matthew 26, verse 36, says, Then Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane, and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. And he went a little beyond them, and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples, and found them sleeping, and said to Peter, so you men could not keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. Then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being betrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once... Put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How then will the scriptures be fulfilled, which say that it must happen this way? At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all of this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You, Lord, for Your Word. And Lord, we thank You for our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, who was willing, Lord, and who did drink the cup that You gave to Him. Lord, the cup that was filled with Your wrath against our sins. And that when He saw and understood so perfectly that the only way in which You could be glorified and the only way that His people could be redeemed from their sins was for Him to go and bear our sins in His body on the tree. That instead of shrinking back from this, uh, He willingly took it on on our behalf in order that our sins might be atoned for and that we might be reconciled to You. And so we thank You, Father, for sending Him uh, to be the uh, perfect sacrifice for our sins. And we thank You, our Lord Jesus Christ, that You were willing to go and lay down your life for us, even though the thought and the prospect of it was so dreadful, 
uh, to you. And Lord, the amount of suffering that you experienced there uh, was beyond what any mind could even begin to comprehend. So Lord, may we see and understand this and see just how grievous and how evil there is in our sin, that we might hate it the way that you do, and that we might see that it was our own sins that caused our precious Savior to be tormented in his own soul, Lord, to such an extreme. So Lord, teach us tonight as we study your word. Lord, give us a greater understanding of our own sin and of your holiness. And Lord, cause our love for you to to grow as we consider all that our Savior has done on behalf of sinners like us. We thank you again, Lord, for your word, and it is in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. All right, so here we are in Matthew 26, and we remember that last week we dealt with this passage where Jesus instituted the um, Lord's Supper uh, there during the Passover meal with His disciples. Uh, There it ended with Him telling them that all of them were going to betray Him, that they were all going to deny Him, that the shepherd would be struck and that the sheep would scatter, that they would all fall away, which led them to all protest and to make very uh, bold statements about their own faithfulness, their devotion, uh, their diligence, that that they would never do that. And Peter uh, especially uh, saying that if the rest of them fall away, I will never fall away, even if I have to die with you, that I am willing to go and die with you. And this is what they all say. So now they have left the upper room where they Uh, shared the Passover meal where the Lord's Supper was instituted. Judas has already left the company of the Twelve and has gone out and is there uh, busy about his work of betraying Jesus Christ. And Jesus has withdrew with his disciples to this garden, the Garden of Gethsemane, where he is now going to give himself to prayer. To prayer because he knows that his hour is soon approaching. And in this passage, his hour will arrive. The hour in which he is betrayed into the hands of sinful men, which begins his sufferings, right? The culmination of his sufferings, which will ultimately lead to his death on the cross. So this is when it all begins, is when he is delivered over into the hands of sinful men, which then leads to the, the arrest, the trials, the scourging, and then ultimately the crucifixion of Christ uh, that will happen in chapter 27. So this is taking place then that night, uh, that uh, Thursday uh, night, late into the night, after they've shared the Passover meal, and now they are in the Garden of Gethsemane, a place that Jesus frequented quite often as a place for Him to go and meditate and to pray and to be alone there with His disciples. So here, let's pick up then... In verse 36, it says, Then Jesus came with him to a place called Gethsemane and said to his disciples, Sit here while I go over there and pray. And he took with him Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed. Then he said to them, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Here, this is right before, right, just before the most severe trial that Jesus is going to face. And right before this trial, what is on his mind and his action is to go and cry out to God in prayer, cry out to his Father. And we have to remember that this is Jesus, the Son of God, who is himself the second person of the Trinity. He is the Son of God, but then he also is the Son of Man. He does have a human nature like ours, but his human nature is not corrupted by sin. His human nature is perfect. He is a perfect, sinless man. Yet even Christ, 
when he is going to face his most severe trial, is not relying on his own strength, but who is he crying out to? He's crying out to his God, to his Father, for his Father's will to be done in his own life and praying for strength and help in this time of need. Now, if Christ feels the need to do this, then how much more do we need to do this? Seeing that we have a corrupt, sinful nature. He did not have the sinful nature that we do that corrupts everything that, that we do. He had a perfect human nature, and yet he still did not rely on his own strength, but he cried out to God for help in his time of need. So how much more then ought we, who are beset with other weaknesses, other than the ones that Jesus had in his natural human body, we have the weaknesses of a corrupt, depraved, sinful, fleshly nature that is still within us, that drags us down, that weighs us down, and keeps us from doing the things that we ought to do. He is giving us an example that we ought to follow, that when we are going through severe afflictions and trials, that we ought to cry out to God. And this is why it is good for us to be afflicted in such ways, because these afflictions do cause us to cry out to God for help in our time of need. A couple of passages, Hebrews, we'll remember Hebrews chapter 4 from this past Sunday. Hebrews chapter 4, verses 14 to 16 Hebrews 4.14 says, Therefore, since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus the Son of God, let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. Here, our high priest can sympathize with our weaknesses, because he's been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Here, this is one of his trials and temptations. And yet he passed through this trial without ever committing sin against God. But he is acquainted with our weaknesses. He knows what it is to be grieved to the point of death. His soul was greatly troubled when he considered what was coming for him, what lie before him, the sufferings, that he was destined to undertake. He was grieved to the very soul, right? To the very core of who he was. So when we are grieved in similar ways, deeply distressed, in great sorrow, who is able to sympathize with that weakness? Our Lord Jesus Christ, because he has already experienced it. Therefore, we can go to him and find grace and mercy to help us during our time of need. Hebrews chapter 5. Hebrews chapter 5, verses 7 to 10 says, In the days of his flesh, he offered up both prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears to the one able to save him from death. And he was heard because of his piety. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from the things which he suffered. And having been made perfect, he became to all those who obey the source of eternal salvation." being designated by God as high priest according to the order of Melchizedek. There, in the days of his flesh, when he was on this earth, when he took on human flesh, a human flesh like ours. This is from Hebrews chapter 2. Since the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. In the days of his flesh, he offered up prayers and supplications with loud crying and tears 
to the one who's able to save him from death. Well, when is an example of him doing this? Matthew chapter 26, in the Garden of Gethsemane. Isn't that what he's doing? He's offering up prayers and supplications to God with crying and tears, with loud cries and with tears to God, and even sweating, as it were, great drops of blood. His sweat was like great drops of blood coming from him. Such was his consternation and the torment and agony he was experiencing when he was thinking about the sufferings that he was going to undertake. This is what he did. And he was heard by God because of his piety. And God delivered him from death. God saved him from death. He didn't save him from dying. He died, but then he delivered him by raising him from the dead. And this way, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And he has been made perfect. Right? Not that he wasn't perfect his whole life, but he proved his perfection through his sufferings. Every trial that God put before him, and each trial became more intense, greater and greater and greater, all culminating with the greatest trial, which was the sufferings of the cross. And whenever God put any test or trial before him, did Jesus ever fail to pass that test? No, he always passed every test, even the greatest, which was the sufferings of the cross. And in doing so, he proved his perfection and that he and he alone is the high priest and the sacrifice that can take away our sins and that we should put our hope and confidence in him. Then also Luke, Luke chapter 5, Luke chapter 5, verse 16. Luke 5.16 says, But Jesus Himself would often slip away to the wilderness and pray. Jesus was often doing this. He would slip away from the disciples, from the crowds, to lonely, desolate places by Himself where He could offer prayers to God. And this He did because He was a man with a nature like ours. He was praying to God as the perfect man, relying on God, depending on God, wanting to understand and know the will of God so that he could do everything that was pleasing to his Father. So just as we need to pray, so he prayed. And he often did this. This was a part of his ministry. Luke 6, 12. It was at this time that he went off to the mountains to pray. And he spent the whole night in prayer to God. He would often do this. Go and spend the whole night in prayer to God which shows you how different um, his nature is one with ours in that he has a human body as we do, but it shows you how we are drugged down by our own sins and weaknesses because it is very difficult for us to do something like this, to spend a whole night in prayer to God without being like the disciples, sleeping, right, weary, distracted. We, can't, we don't have the capacity to do that because of the flesh and the weaknesses of our own sinful, corrupt nature. But none of those weaknesses were with Christ. So he was able to practice perfect righteousness before God and give himself to the spiritual disciplines and duties that are necessary to live a godly life. And this is what he did. So there are many examples in the scriptures where Jesus would do such things, uh, where he would go to desolate places by himself, in the wilderness, on the mountain, lonely places, 
and there he would offer prayers to God. And here, this is what he's doing. So this was a part of his ministry. This was a part of his life. So it's not surprising then that on the night of his betrayal, and just before his greatest suffering, his greatest trial, he would be giving himself to prayers to God. Verses 37 and 38. He takes Peter and the two sons of Zebedee and began to be grieved and distressed and said, My soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. Remain here and keep watch with me. Here we are reminded that Jesus has a complete human nature. He has both a human body and a human soul, right? Both of those, we are made up of these two components. We have a body and we have a soul. God created Adam and then breathed into him the breath of life. He gave him a soul. And so this is what we have. This is what constitutes us. So also Christ had both a human body and he had a human soul. And this is why he says, my soul is deeply grieved to the point of death. That invisible inner spiritual component of man, this is what is so grieved within him, even to the point of death, right? He is grieved when he thinks about all that he is about to suffer. It says in John chapter 12, he says that his soul was greatly troubled when he considers these things. And this has to be his human soul, his human soul. And there, are, uh, there is a heresy out there that teaches that Jesus had a human body, but then his soul was the divine part. So he didn't have a human soul. He had a human body, but then that body was filled with the spiritual part, which was his divinity. But that is a heresy. He had to have both a human body and a human soul. And that full humanity was then united to his divinity so that he was both fully God and fully man. And he was like us in every way. We have a body and soul. So he had a body and a soul. John 12, 27. Now my soul has become troubled. And what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again. There, my soul has become troubled. Troubled when he's thinking about his impending death. But what should he do about it? Should I say to my father, save me from this hour? Don't make me undergo this suffering. But he says, no, this is the very reason I came to this hour. This is why I came to the earth was to offer my life for the sake of his people. Now, the question is, why? Why was he so troubled in his soul? Why was he deeply grieved even to the point of death? And the answer is in many places in Scripture. But one is Isaiah 53. Isaiah chapter 53, Jesus understands full well the meaning of these prophecies. He knows that they are fulfilled and completed in him. And he knows that what Isaiah is predicting in Isaiah 53 is in a matter of hours going to be accomplished in his body. Right? It's all going to happen in him, on, on, in his body, on the tree, in just a matter of hours. And when he's thinking about all that this entails, it causes him to be grieved to the point of death. And as the other evangelist records, that his sweat, he was sweating like great drops of blood. 
even though it was in the middle of the night, in the cool of the evening, and even though he was not working, he was not exerting himself physically, yet when he was thinking about his sufferings and meditating on that, it was causing him to sweat in this way because of the amount of suffering he was about to endure. Isaiah 53. Who has believed our message? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a tender shoot, like a root out of parched ground. He had no stately form or majesty that we should look upon him, no appearance that we should be attracted to him. He was despised and forsaken of men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, and like one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we did not esteem him. Surely our griefs he himself bore, our sorrows he carried. Yet we ourselves esteemed him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastising for our well-being fell upon him, and by his scourging we are healed. All of us like sheep have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way. But the Lord has caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to slaughter, and like a sheep that is silent before its shearers, so he did not open his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living for the transgression of my people to whom the stroke was due? His grave was assigned with the wicked men, yet he was with a rich man in his death, because he had done no violence, nor was there any deceit in his mouth. But the Lord was pleased to crush him, putting him to grief. If he would render himself as a guilt offering, he will see his offspring. He will prolong his days, and the good pleasure of the Lord will prosper in his hand. As a result of the anguish of his soul, he will see it and be satisfied. And by his knowledge, the righteous one, my servant, will justify the many, as he will bear their iniquities. Therefore, I will allot him a portion with the great, and he will divide the booty with the strong. Because he poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, Yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. This is the basis for his being grieved to the point of death. The Lord caused the iniquity of us all to fall on him. God was in this moment about to impute the sin of the people onto the sinless Son of God, onto our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He was placing our sins in His body at this point, and then He was going to be nailed to the cross. And He understood what that entailed, that God was about to crush Him. God was about to pour out His wrath upon Jesus Christ on the cross. And this is what He was about to endure. So it's not just that He was about to die, and this is why He was troubled so much. It is because He knew that He was about to suffer the full wrath of God against our sins. Not His sins, but our sins. And when we consider that every single sin, right, if we live a completely perfect life and sin one time, what does that sin deserve? That sin deserves death, and it deserves an eternity in hell separated from God. Now, how many times do we sin in our life? There's no, there, there's no way we can even begin to count it. We have both the guilt 
of our natural corruption, right? Our original sin that we inherited from Adam, and we are guilty and worthy of death for that. And then we have all of our actual sins, sins of the mind, sins of the mouth, sins of the heart, sins of the body. The ones before our conversion, the ones after our conversion, right? Our daily sins, right? Our failings and our weaknesses that are so great and so many that they would even reach up to the heavens. And every single one of those sins is deserving of what? Eternal death, eternal damnation. And Christ is going to bear all of those sins, not just for one person, but for who? For every single one of His people, from Adam until the end of the world, which according to Revelation chapter 7 is a multitude so great that no one can count. And He was about to take the wrath of God for all of the sins of all of His people from Adam to the end of the world, and all of that was going to be put in His body on the tree, and then God was going to pour out His wrath against that sin to the point that it was completely extinguished in our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. His sufferings are greater than even the sufferings of the wicked in hell for all eternity. Because in hell, the reason the wicked are there for all eternity is because since their offense is against an eternal God, they can never exhaust the wrath of God. It can never be satisfied in those temporal people. So they never come to the end of the wrath of God that is against them. And this is why they suffer for all eternity. But Jesus would extinguish, He would expiate the sins and the wrath of God against His people. He would drink it down to the very dregs and would drain the cup dry, not just for one person, but for all of the sins of all of His people from the beginning of time until the end of time. That's what he's about to endure. And this is what he knows and understands. He knows and understands it more than we know and understand it. He knows sin greater than we know sin. He knows the wrath of God greater than we know the wrath of God. He understands what we have done greater than we understand. And he's about to take all of that in his body on the tree and is going to suffer. He knows the severity of the wrath of God. And this is why his soul is troubled. He is deeply grieved to even the point of death. So, we have to understand this. We need to see what sin and what the wrath of God, what it does to Jesus Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane. Because this is our sin that He is suffering over. Not His sin. He's perfect and sinless. It is the prospect of our sin. Do we think about our own sin in this way? Are we grieved the way Christ is grieved? Are we deeply troubled in soul and spirit the way He is deeply troubled whenever He considers the wrath of God against sin? Right? We need to see and understand those things. Otherwise, we will not have a true comprehension of our own sin. So, this is why He is distressed the way He is. And this is why He is going to pray and he's also, also asking his own disciples to watch and pray with him. Right. Not only for their own sake, but for his sake as well. Right? Aren't we supposed to pray for one another and lift each other up in prayers? Well, doesn't he need his companions to lift him up, to support him, right? to pray for him, to cry out to God on his behalf, right? to be there with him in that situation? Yes, he certainly does. 
right? We are to bear each, other bur each other's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. It says in Galatians chapter 6, verse 2, is Jesus bearing a very great burden right here? Very great. Well, this is the time to bear one another's burdens for them to come alongside and help bear his burden, right? To be a support and a ministry to him. And this is why we find, oh, so true, the words of the apostle, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Because what are the disciples in this case? They're faithless. They don't pray for him. They're too busy sleeping. But he remains faithful to them because he cannot deny himself and he will not deny himself. Verse 39, he went a little beyond them and fell on his face and prayed, saying, My father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but as you will. And he came to the disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men cannot keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Here he goes beyond them. So he takes the eleven. He leaves eight of the eleven at one spot. He takes the three, Peter, James, and John with him further on, asks them specifically to pray. And we know that these three were uh, part of this inner circle. There were certain privileges given to them above the other eight in that when he healed Jairus' daughter, he took those three in with him to be witnesses. And then these three were with him on the Mount of Transfiguration. So also here they are with him in the garden and he wants them to go with him and to pray for them. Then he leaves them and goes on. And now he falls on his face in such agony and distress because of, again, our sin, which is a, again, a rebuke against us so often for how little we feel over our own sins, how quick we are to excuse, to justify our sins, while our Lord and Savior is falling on His face when He thinks about our own sin. This is the way that we need to be. We need to pray that God would open our eyes and let us understand, give us faith and understanding into the corruptions of our own sinfulness, and that He would break our hearts right, over our own sin, so that we have this dread and hatred for them in the same way that our Lord Jesus Christ does. Okay, then verse 39, he says, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me, yet not as I will, but you. Here, he is talking about this cup, this cup, the cup of God that God has in his hands, and it is the cup that he is about to drink. And he's asking his father, if it's possible, let this cup pass over me. Right now, again, this is showing us the full humanity of Christ on display. And it is, he's not doubting the will of God. He's not uncertain about what he's supposed to do. He is showing, though, that he is a man with a nature like ours. And he's not sinning in this. He's not saying, I'm not going to do it or I don't want to do it or why are you doing this to me? But who wants to go and die a miserable death? Does any man want to naturally die a miserable death? Of course not. So of course he's praying, Father, if it's possible, let this pass from me. But if the only way to redeem the people and to glorify your name is for me to go to the cross, then not my will, but your will. I will go and do whatever you call me to do. But if it's possible, if there's any other way to accomplish this, then bring it about though he knows there is no other way, which is why in the end he resigns himself 
to doing the will of God. I will do it because I know this is the only way that it can be accomplished. But here his prayer is not my will, but your will. I want your will to be done and I don't want my will to exceed or supersede your will, to be in contradiction to your will. I want my will to align with the will of God. And this is why we are to pray. When we pray, we're not changing God's mind. We're not getting God to do something that He wasn't already going to do. The point of prayer is that our will would be aligned with the will of God, to bring us in conformity to what God has willed and to what God is bringing about. And this is why we are to pray according to the will of God. 1 John chapter 5, 1 John chapter 5, verses 13 to 15. <clears throat> 1 John 5, 13. These things I have written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, so that you may know that you have eternal life. This is the confidence we have before Him, that if we ask anything according to His will, He hears us. And if we know that He hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the request which we have asked from Him. So we are to pray according to the will of God. And we are to submit everything to God's perfect will. And Jesus was not exempt from this as a perfect man. But He submitted everything to the perfect will of God. And whatever that will was, that is what He was determined to do. Because His food was to do the will of Him who sent Him and to finish His work, it says in John chapter 4. Also, we should point out that this does contradict and rebuke the name it and claim it people. There are certain segments out there who would say that if we condition our prayers with not my will but your will, it shows that we, are not, we don't have faith. We're doubting. We just need to name it and claim it. But did Jesus practice name it and claim it theology? No. He's saying, Lord, let this pass over me. But he didn't claim that. He submitted that desire to the will of God. And in this case, the will of God was for him to go and die. So that desire to not have to face this type of horrendous suffering was denied Christ. Right? He did not. Uh, it, it was not. God did not grant that in that way. So the name it and claim it is not good. It's not good. And it, under that theology, you would have to accuse Jesus of sinning because he's praying according to the will of God. And that is not lacking faith. That is faith, right? He is practicing perfect faith. <clears throat> also, this contends against the stiff upper lip. You know, those who say no emotion, just we're just resigned to do whatever God, whatever God says, and we're not going to weep, to be sorrowful, to be sad, to have any consternation over these types of things. Right? Who can live like that? No one. It's impossible. Right? We have emotions. We have affections. Right? We think about things. We're troubled in that way. And so is our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. So there's nothing wrong with being troubled, with being deeply grieved, with being sorrowful to the point of death, to falling on your face, to crying out with loud cries and tears to God. That's not a lack of faith. This is what it is to be a man, right? And to be a human. This is who we are, right? We're not robots in the way that we live our life before God. And Jesus wasn't a robot, even though he was always going to do the will of God. Also, we might point out as well, the contrast between Jesus <clears throat> and the martyrs. 
Many of the martyrs who went to death, went to their deaths joyfully, singing praises to God, uh, rejoicing in the sufferings that were before them. Now, this wasn't always the case, but there were many. And if you read the... Uh, not the voice of the martyrs, the Fox's Books of Martyrs. You read Fox's Books of, of Martyrs, and there's many accounts of many martyrs who went to their deaths, praising God, rejoicing, not falling on their faces, not crying out, Lord, if possible, let this cup pass over me, not in any way, shape, or form with the type of consternation that we see visibly present here in the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. However, his sufferings are of a different nature than their sufferings. No one, no martyr ever suffered like Jesus did because none of them are bearing the sins of other people and none of them are suffering the wrath of God. Rather, the presence of God is with them in the midst of their sufferings and certainly God's presence in a sense of helping him and sustaining him is with Christ, but also his wrath is against him. But God's wrath wasn't against any of the martyrs his favor and His love was with them during that time. So this shows us that Jesus' sufferings were of... It was more than just Him dying on the cross. What was happening invisibly and spiritually was the greater portion of His sufferings right. in that God's wrath was being poured out on Him. Otherwise, it wouldn't make any sense that the martyrs go joyfully to their death while their captain is here on the ground, on his face, crying out, Lord, deliver me from this. His sufferings were of a different nature. They were not suffering to atone for the sins of others, but rather their sins had already been atoned for by his sufferings. And they had the favor and approval of God, and they knew that for them to be absent from the body was to be ushered into the presence of the Lord because of what Christ had done. But they were not about to face the wrath of God against, their, against the sins of others there on the cross as our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ was. Okay, then verse 40. He came to His disciples and found them sleeping and said to Peter, So you men couldn't keep watch with me for one hour? Keep watching and praying that you may not enter into temptation. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Now we are reminded back in chapter 26 verse 31. Chapter 26, 31. Jesus said to them, You will all fall away because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. But after I have been raised, I will go ahead of you to Galilee. But Peter said to him, Even though all may fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I say to you that this very night before a rooster crows, you will deny me three times. Peter said to him, Even if I have to die with you, I will not deny you. All the disciples said the same thing. Here, they are making these loud, very confident assertions of their faithfulness and their devotion to Christ. Just a mere matter of an hour before, or just a short period of time before, they're all saying confidently, I'll never deny you. And of them, who is the one stating this the loudest? Who is the one protesting the most? who is most boldly and confidently asserting his faithfulness that he will never fall away. Even if he has to die, he will die with Christ. It is Peter. And so who does Jesus address when he comes and finds him sleeping? Peter. He says to Peter and the rest. This is why Peter is pointed out. You're the one saying that you will die with me, but I asked you to pray for me and you can't even do that. 
and you're not watching and praying. So how are you going to be able to endure this trial and the temptation that you're about to endure? You're about to face a harsh trial. Jesus is about to face a harsh trial. Jesus going to his trial is on his knees, on his face, praying to God with loud cries and tears, praying for God to deliver him, but they're not doing the same. Instead, they are overcome with sleep and they are resting and they cannot offer prayers to God. How are you going to do the will of God and stand in the face of this temptation? Satan has asked to sift Peter as wheat. This is what's about to come upon him. And yet you're not praying to God and asking God to help you, to give you strength, to give you grace, to give you mercy, to help you in your time of need. But instead, you are sleeping. And how can we ever overcome any temptation except by the help of God, the power of God? This is why we were taught in Matthew 6 in the Lord's Prayer. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We have to pray for God to deliver us from evil that we would not be overcome with temptation because none of us can stand on our own. If anyone thinks he stands, he needs to take heed lest he falls. And then Jesus gives in such a short statement, such a perfect description of what we are like. Even as believers, the spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. Could there not be a more true statement concerning our time from our conversion until our death. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. And this is what is happening here with his own disciples. Yes, the spirit is willing. There is a component within them that wants to overcome temptation, that wants to give themselves to their spiritual duties, that wants to do the will of God. They know what they ought to do. And there is a part within them, the spiritual part, the part that has been renewed, that has been filled by the Spirit of God, that wants to give themselves to these kinds of things, that doesn't want to sin against God, that wants to do the will of God. However, that inner man is being housed within the outer man, right? The spirit, the inner man has been renewed, but the outer man is wasting away. And there is still this flesh that keeps us from doing the things that we want to do. The spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. Our flesh is weak, both naturally, we have a weak body that is tired, that is susceptible to sickness, to hunger, to thirst, that, that doesn't want to suffer, doesn't want to face hardships. This is how we are naturally in our body. And then on top of that, there is the depraved part, the, the part that is uh, filled with sin and infirmities that we have as well. The fleshly part that is sinful, that wages war against the spirit. And because of this, though there is a part of us that wants to do the will of God, we find the flesh is weak and the flesh, many times we give in to the flesh. And instead of doing what God calls us to do, we are asleep, we're lazy, we indulge in this or that. We don't give ourselves attentively to our spiritual duties and obligations the way that we ought to do. And this describes this constant battle that takes place during the time of our sojourning on earth, which is our sanctification. The spirit being willing, the flesh being weak. And this is the principal suffering of the children of God. It is the suffering that we endure because of the presence of the flesh. And one of the chief indications 
that the Spirit is alive and well within us, right? That we are children of God and we possess the Spirit of God is this longing and desire to be freed from the body of flesh, right? To be set free from this war and to no longer have to contend with the flesh anymore. But as long as we're in this life, what do we have to deal with? The Spirit is willing. The flesh is very, very weak. And the flesh sinks under hardships, sufferings, afflictions, temptations. When persecution rises, the flesh wants to run away. The Spirit wants to be bold and courageous. The flesh wants to run away and hide. This is the way it is. And it will be that way throughout the remainder of our course on earth, which is why we need to pray. Pray to God that He will give us the strength to overcome the flesh and to yield to the Spirit. But how can you pray when you're asleep? Right? That's the problem with the disciples here during the time of temptation that is about to come upon them. Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, we're familiar with this passage, but it perfectly describes in more detail what Jesus says in this short statement. Spirit is willing, flesh is weak. The apostle explains more fully in Romans 7, 14 to 25. Romans 7, 14. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh, sold into bondage to sin. For what I am doing, I do not understand. For I am not practicing what I would like to do, but I am doing the very thing that I hate. Right? Why is that the case? The Spirit is willing, the flesh is weak. I want to do it, but I don't do it. Right? The Spirit wants to, but the flesh is weak. But if I do the very thing that I do not want to do, I agree with the law, confessing that the law is good. So now no longer am I the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For the willing is present in me, that's the spirit, the spirit is willing, but the doing of the good is not, that's the flesh that is weak. For the good that I want, I do not, but I practice the very evil that I do not want. But if I'm doing the very thing I do not want, I'm no longer the one doing it, but sin which dwells in me. I find then the principle that evil is present in me, the one who wants to do good. For I joyfully concur with the law of God in the inner man. That's the spirit. But I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me prisoner to the law of sin which is in my members. That's the flesh. Wretched man that I am, who will set me free from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then on the one hand I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other with my flesh the law of sin. That's what's happening here in the garden. The spirit willing, the flesh is weak. Then verse 42. He went away again a second time and prayed, saying, My father, if this cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. Again he came and found them sleeping, for their eyes were heavy. And he left them again and went away and prayed a third time, saying the same thing once more. <laughs> then he came to the disciples and said to them, Are you still sleeping and resting? Behold, the hour is at hand, and the Son of Man is being portrayed into the hands of sinners. Get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. Here, the time to watch and pray, the time to be prepared for action is about to be over, and then the battle is going to arrive, right? That's what's going to happen, uh, and this is what the disciples are failing to do. Jesus, He has prepared Himself to face the trial. The disciples have not prepared themselves they are not going to be ready for the trial that is coming upon them. Jesus says in verse 42 that He is willing 
to drink this cup. If it cannot pass away unless I drink it, your will be done. He's willing to drink the cup if it's necessary for the glory of God and for the salvation of His people. And this is why He willingly went to the cross. No one took His life from Him, but He laid it down on His own accord. He was like a sheep being led to the slaughter. And this is why He did not revile whenever He was reviled. But He continued entrusting Himself to Him who judges justly. So there... Jesus is willing to go and lay down His life there for us. He comes again, finds them sleeping. Their eyes are heavy. He goes back. He again prays another time, saying the same thing. Then in verse 45, He comes back to the disciples. He wakes them now, rebukes them for still resting and sleeping. But now the hour is at hand and the Son of Man is going to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Now he's going to be handed over to sinners. And who are these sinners that are going to, he's going to be handed over to? Well, the high priest, the chief priest of the, uh, of the Jews, the scribes, the Pharisees, right? The Romans, all of them are going to take him and they're all going to be responsible for his crucifixion. And here he calls them uh, sinners. Right, And this shows you just how depraved, uh, how far the Jewish nation had fallen at this point. Those who had the oracles of God, and yet here Jesus describes them as sinners. And the chiefs among them, right, the priests, the Levites, the scribes, the ones who were to be the teachers, who were to instruct the people in the will of God, they are the chief sinners among them who are responsible for the unjust murder of the Son of God, which shows how depraved and how contrary they were to the will of God. And here in all of this, Jesus is going willingly to his death. He tells them in verse 36, get up, let us be going. Behold, the one who betrays me is at hand. He doesn't say, get up, let's run and hide. He could have easily done that, couldn't he have? to get away from them. He knows that they're coming to take him away. He could have ran away and fled and hid. He did that earlier in his life. Whenever they tried to seize him, he would hide uh, in the temple. He would do whatever was necessary to escape them. But now the hour of his death has come and he's not running away. He's going out to meet them and ask them, what are you here for? Knowing full well that they're coming to take him away to crucifixion. And this is because No one is going to take his life, but rather he is willingly going to lay it down for our sakes. John chapter 10. John 10 verse 11. John 10 11 says, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd, who is not the owner of the sheep, sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees, and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. I am the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also. And they will hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. For this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life, so that I may take it again. No one has taken it away from me, 
but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have the authority to lay it down. I have the authority to take it up. This commandment I received from my Father. He lays it down on His own initiative. Willingly, He goes and does this for our sake. Right? All of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, the animals were ignorant. They didn't know what they were going to. But if they did know what they were going to, what would they have done? <laughs> they would have run. Right? Run as fast as they could. Right? Exactly what they would have done. But Jesus knows full well what lies before Him. <clears throat> and He does not run away from it, but He walks headlong into it. And why was He willing to do this? For whose sake? For our sake. Yes, for, for each and every one of us. For the sake of His sheep. Because He knows the only way that our sins can be atoned for is by His laying His life down <coughs> for our sakes. And so He willingly goes to the cross. Okay, verse 47. While he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs who came from the chief priests and the elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and laid hands on Jesus and seized him. Here... While he's saying this to his disciples, now this large crowd of people led by Judas Iscariot uh, comes up and everything is going to begin to transpire that leads to his arrest, the trial, and then ultimately the crucifixion. Now, there was a good point, and I'll give credit to where credit is due, that was made by uh, John Gill. And his good point was that while the other disciples were sleeping, there was one of Jesus' disciples that was busy and who was active and who was working hard. And who is the only one not sleeping on this night? Judas. It is Judas Iscariot, the one who was doing evil and who was doing sin. And he said, it is often the case that the children of the world and evil people are more zealous to do sin than the children of God are to do that which is good and right. And this was certainly the case in the disciples. The rest of them are sleeping and resting, not giving themselves to the duties and to the calling in which Christ has called them, while Judas, who is set about to commit sin and to do great evil, all for the sake of sordid gain, is busy about going around, doing what is necessary to bring the people, to round them up, so that he can betray Jesus into the hands of these people for sordid gain. So it's a very sad state indeed. And it's often true even of us as well. Here, they're described as a large crowd or a multitude of people who came up. In John chapter 18, verse 3, it says that it was a cohort, a cohort of Roman soldiers, which was about 420 soldiers. So there's about 420 Roman soldiers, and then there's also guards and soldiers that are sent from the priest and from the temple. So when it says a multitude or a large crowd, we're talking about hundreds and hundreds of people who have come out here on this occasion. And they're coming out to arrest one man who has never done anything violent in his entire life. Right? This is who they're coming out against. As if he is some serial killer. They're treating him like he's Charles Manson out here who's murdered all these people and sending this huge group of men to go and arrest him like Jesus is some rabble-rouser, an insurrectionist who's constantly going around, stirring up trouble, 
causing insurrections, causing violence, killing people, when he is meek and mild and lowly and humble in all of the things that he does. And yet here they are all coming to arrest the one man, Jesus Christ. And Judas comes out and has given them this sign. The one that I kiss, this is the one, seize him. And then he went and gave Jesus this greeting of, of his rabbi, his teacher, which was a big fat lie, and then gave him this kiss, which was also hypocritical because the kiss that we give to our friends is to greet one another with a holy kiss. It says in Romans 16, 16. But this is not a holy kiss. This is an unholy kiss, right? It is the sign he uses to betray Christ into the hands of these wicked men. Because it's in the middle of the night. It's dark out there. There's not street lights or lamps. Nobody has their cell phones. They've got their torches and stuff. You know, so how are they going to know which man it is? And this is the sign that Judas gives to them. A sign of complete, utter treachery. How many times had Jesus given him a proper greeting? greeted him with a holy kiss, only to have Judas turn that and use it as his betrayal. So this is a very wicked thing to do. Something that in and of itself is to be good, is to be done in a proper way, to show love to we, between brothers or kinsmen or relatives, and yet he uses this to betray Christ into the hands of these sinful men. So a very evil, wicked thing to do. And then he tells him, do what you've come to do. Quit with this pretension. Quit with your hypocrisy. Just do what you've come to do. And quit pretending to be my friend, to love me, because I know who you are and I know what you've come here to do. So get away with all your pretentiousness and just, just be honest and admit that you are a wretched, miserable person. Right? That's what he needed to do. Then verse 51. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest, and cut off his ear. And then Jesus said to him, Put your sword back into its place, for all those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you not think that I can appeal to my Father? And he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels. How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say that it must happen this way? Now we know from John 18 verse 10 that Peter was the one who drew out the sword and cut off the ear of the high priest. And that he cut off his ear was uh, because of the providence and the grace of God. Because he wasn't aiming for his ear. He was aiming for his head and he cut off his ear, right? He was waving his sword around. And if he would have killed the man, then what would that have led to? So this is the problem. Peter is talking about his faithfulness, his devotion. He's not praying but then when this happens, he's acting erratically, he's acting rashly, he's not set his mind on the things of God, but he's just letting his flesh and his emotions and his passions rule over him to the detriment of the will of God. Because if he kills this man, then Peter will be arrested as well, and he'll be hanging on the cross next to Jesus, right? Or he'll be executed as well. So this puts everything in great jeopardy. And... Maybe they'll just round up the rest of them. Because, again, here they are. Jesus has a good reputation among the people. They know that he's not a violent man like this. But now, word's going to spread that, no, don't you know that Peter chopped this guy's head off? One of his disciples chopped this guy's head off whenever they came out to arrest him. So this has the potential to be catastrophic, to cause a lot of damage 
in what it's doing. And yet it is only because of Christ and His control and His grace and His power that this is quelled and that it doesn't lead to further violence and death to Jesus or to the other disciples. Also, we know from the other evangelists that Jesus put the ear back on the man, which had to be very... Uh, cause him to be in great consternation because right? he's here to arrest him, but he just healed me, right? And they all saw this. They all saw and witnessed it. And it just shows you how blind, how hard-hearted they were in the things that they were doing. Even there, at his arrest, there was a display of the power of God. Who can do those things unless God is with him? It says in John chapter 9. Who can put the ear of a person back on him? miraculously, and heal him in that way if God is not with him. And yet, they drag him away as if he is a criminal. Now, Jesus rebukes Peter and tells him to put his sword back into its place, because those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. When he says those who take up the sword, he means it in an illegitimate way. <clears throat> those who unjustly take up the sword, he's not saying that there is no legitimate use of the sword. We know from Romans chapter 13 that the ruling authorities do not bear the sword in vain. That they are to take up the sword as a part of their ministry. They are servants of God, a minister who is doing God's will on earth. And part of that ministry, that service, is to bear the sword and they don't bear it in vain. They are to use the sword as a tool of punishment against those who do evil. Also we know in the case of self-defense. If someone is threatening your life, that we have the right from God to defend our life or to defend the life of other innocent people against a criminal or against someone who, who is being violent. But in this case, Jesus is willingly going to the cross. Jesus is the one in control and Peter is just acting rashly, impulsively, according to his own passions. And people who have these outbursts of violence in this way, unjustified, what will eventually end up happening to them? If you live that way by the sword, you're going to die by the sword. Either you're going to meet your match, you're going to swing your sword at someone, you might chop off his ear, but he might knock your head off. You're going to die there on the spot, or you're going to kill someone and then you're going to be arrested and they're going to take you off and they're going to execute you by the civil authorities. Either way, you're going to die prematurely because you are living a violent Life. And so he's saying we shouldn't do this. And what Peter does in this moment is unjustified. It's unjustified because Jesus has told them that he's going to be betrayed. He even just announced it that this is what's about to happen. So why are you doing this, Peter? Your mind isn't set on the will of God, but rather upon his own will. His will is to go and do it. And that's why he says in verse 53, do you think, Peter, that I need you to defend me? To save my life? No. Don't you know that I could appeal to my father? He would put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels. If Jesus wanted to escape, and if he did not want to be put to death, this, what we would say, large crowd of soldiers, is nothing compared to the power that Jesus has at his disposal. His father would dispatch 12 legions of angels to come and to protect him if necessary. And a legion is five to 6,000 men. 
So 12 groups of five to 6,000 angels, not men, angels, who can come and defend him if necessary. And we know that one angel put to death over 100,000 Assyrians one time there in the history of Israel. What could 12 legions of angels do to these men? Well, they could easily dispatch them and preserve and save Jesus and His disciples if this was the will of God. God can do whatever He wants. However, if that happened, how would the Scriptures be fulfilled? The Scriptures must be fulfilled, and the Scriptures that must be fulfilled is what we read earlier from Isaiah chapter 53, and many other Scriptures as well, such as Psalm 22. Psalm 22, verses 11 to 13 describes exactly what is happening. Isn't this a perfect description of what Jesus is facing in the Garden of Gethsemane? Psalm 22, verse 11. Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Many bulls have surrounded me. Strong bulls of Bashan have encircled me. They open wide their mouth at me as a ravening and roaring lion. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax... It is melted within me. Then also verse 16, For dogs have surrounded me. A band of evildoers have encompassed me. They pierced my hands and my feet. This is exactly what's happening here. A band of dogs has surrounded Christ. Dogs that have come against Him. Evildoers encompassing Him. Strong bulls encircling Him. He all by Himself surrounded by all of these enemies and evildoers who want to crucify Him and put him to death. But he's still trusting in the Lord. Then verses 55 and 56. At that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me as you would against a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets. Then all the disciples left him and fled. Here, now he rebukes this crowd, because they're committing sin, Though they're doing the will of God, they're doing it with evil motives, and it is sin in the way that they are doing it. Here, he's pointing out to them, you, you're treating me like I'm, like I'm a, a wanted criminal who's on the run, who has been avoiding the long arm of the law for all of these years and committing havoc and violence all over the place. But I've been daily, even this week, did he not daily go to the temple? in broad daylight, in the public, and teach openly. He's not hiding. He's not doing this subversively. He's not in dark corners. He's doing this openly. So if what I'm saying is false, then stand up and contend against me. Right? Prove from the Scriptures that what I'm saying is false. But if not, then why are you doing this? And why are you treating me like I'm some common criminal? When I've been out in the open, everything that I've done has been open, it's been in the broad daylight, and you had ample opportunity to arrest me in the broad daylight. But they wouldn't do it that way because they're deceit, deceitful people. Right? This is the hour of darkness that has come, and that is why they've come in the darkness. Because what they're doing is evil. It's sinful. It needs to be done in the dark of night because it's not honest. It's not just. It's not righteous. It's not true. 
Everything about it is wrong and unwholesome. And so he rebukes them because of those things. He was a meek, mild, peaceful man. Not a rabble-rouser and not a violent man in any way, shape, or form. He didn't even cry aloud in the streets, it says in Matthew chapter 12. But they're treating him in this way. And then he says, but it all has to take place to fulfill Scripture. I know why this is happening. And I'm committed to doing the will of God. And then the disciples all flee and leave him there alone and by himself. His friends all forsake him here in his moment of greatest need. And it proves that his word never fails. He told them, you're all going to fall away. And they all said, no way. No way, Jose. We'll never fall away. But what happened? Exactly what he said would happen. They all fell away and they all ran and saved their own skin and left him there all by himself. Which is an act. It's not as treacherous as what Judas did. But this is a, an act of betrayal uh, for them to forsake him in that way, to run away. Right? If you're going into battle with your buddy and your buddy takes off running and leaves you there by yourself, that's treason, right? That's grounds for him to be executed for doing that. Well, that's what they did to Christ right there. However, we see how compassionate and gracious he is because though they did this to him, he will forgive them, he will restore them, and he will still use them in a very mighty way. And this is what he does for us in so many times in so many ways.